Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of Calvero Speaks. This is a podcast by popular recording artist Calvero. That's me. So, it's the morning. I found that I like doing this in the morning. It's a reflective time. It's a quiet time. I'm not fully awake, so I can't completely get into my own way just yet. And um, I set up all my shit, my recording stuff, my microphone. I'm all ready to go. As soon as I hit record, some schmuck outside starts wailing on fucking power tools. 7.30 in the morning. It's unbelievable. But uh, we're gonna, we're just gonna, I think I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep my calm, I'm gonna keep my focus, we're just gonna power through, and it's gonna be terrific, it's gonna be terrific, folks. So, thank you to everybody who listened to the first episode, I don't know if I expected fucking anybody to listen to it, um, but uh, for those of you who enjoyed it and listened, um, I really appreciate it, I got some, some really nice messages and it meant a lot, um, so if you continue to enjoy this podcast, why not tell a friend? Appreciate that. And uh, you can also, on Apple, you can leave a review. You can give it a rating. Um, this is a five-star podcast, folks, according to the two people that that rated it. So shout out to those two people. Um, let's see. Do I have any plugs before I, uh, before I launch into this thing, the second episode? How about this? I got a little um, newsletter um, that I that I send out every month or so. If you head to the show notes, you can sign up for that. Just give some updates. Um, usually write a little essay about what's been floating around in my head. Um, so, yeah, sign up for that. It's a good time, folks. Um, so I just want to give a little content warning off the top that that um for for the very beginning of this story I will be there will be some content about depression and suicide and uh some traumatic health issues so if that's the sort of thing that you're uncomfortable with or would rather not hearing um I'll give a warning right before that stuff starts and then um if you skip ahead a little bit most of this episode is going to be about music stuff it's going to be very fun um so let's just dive right in. Let's dive right in. Um, so the last episode uh, we left off, right? And folks, if you haven't heard the first episode, maybe give this a pause, catch up, listen to the first one. It's not it's not essential. It's somewhat chronological, but not really. Um, I guess you, this is a prequel. This is a prequel to the uh, first episode in 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 a certain sense. Um, so the last episode we left off where I, uh, had released this album with my band Dastardly that we had worked on for about three years and I had considered it to be this gigantic failure and, uh, was kind of moving forward for that and, um, had, had, um, decided to end the band and was uh, figuring out what to do next. Um, so that's where we left things. And for this episode, I want to go back <clears throat> to 2012. Um, so that was that was 2015 when we left off um, the last episode. So let's backtrack. 2012, three years prior. 
At that point, my band at the time, Dastardly, we were on a break and we'd been very active touring, doing lots of live shows, um, lots of regional touring. And um, so I guess musically, we started out being pretty raucous, I'd say, high energy, whiskey fueled, um, sometimes sensitive alt country. We do a lot of like house shows and crazy shit like that. Um, I had a friend, friend who said like, you know, one of the one of the coolest things about you guys is that you're really good, but you also drink whiskey like it's milk. So that's like that's what was going on there. And I had a big beard, and I would get pretty blackout drunk uh, on the reg, I'd say. Um, at shows mostly, but then started, um, outside of shows too, just, just, um, on a night to night basis, not every night, but more, more than ideal, which is zero. I prefer the times to get blackout drunk to be zero. Um, and I would get real angry just on stage, off stage, just the way that I saw the world. I was a very angry person and, um, I was worn out from a lot of the touring that we were doing back to, this is 2012. Um, I think that I was probably, I was on tour every month, uh, either with the band or at, I would just go solo with, with, a, with a friend and I'd represent dastardly um, as myself, unfortunately. Um, so I was worn out from touring and I needed a fucking break from being active with the band and active as a touring person and I was also starting to change I think as a person before I felt like I could say whatever I wanted or act however I wanted treat people however I wanted and that it didn't matter because I felt like deep inside I was a fucking great guy and yet I also had this unbearable air of self-deprecation about me um, I recently saw someone tweet this old interview with Orson Welles and he was talking about how much he fucking hated Woody Allen. And he had said there's like a, the, the quote is, there's a certain combination of arrogance and timidity that sets my teeth on edge. He hates himself and he loves himself. It's a very tense situation. And I think that describes me pretty well back then. Um, hopefully not as much now try to be fucking self-aware okay I try to be self-aware but I think that at that time in my life I heard enough people and I had some people who I cared about just pretty much fucking eviscerate me and really lay out what a fucking asshole I was and at first I couldn't deal with it um okay so here's by the way this is where I'll say um if if you're uncomfortable listening to stuff about severe depression, health issues, um, I would, I'd skip ahead maybe five, five minutes or so, and then we'll get out of this. Um, but yeah, um, I think that the, when people were really laying out what a fucking asshole I was, I couldn't deal with it. And I shut down and I got defensive and I was hurt and I'd sleep all the time, sleep in until maybe 2 or 3 p.m. 
and just wait until I can go to sleep again. Um, but ultimately, I listened to it and I realized that I needed to change and that I didn't want to be this person anymore. This person that was maybe charming and memorable on stage, enjoyable to hang out with for one night while passing through on tour. But beyond that, I think I was probably becoming fucking unbearable. Um, not just to other people, but to myself. I would just get so drunk and just not be able to handle how sad and angry and alienated I felt. And my entire life, I've struggled with eczema, um, which, you know, it's these rashes. And for me, it usually gets exacerbated when my uh, depression and my anxiety was out of control. I didn't have health insurance at that time, so I wasn't taking the right stuff for it. It was getting bad. My body and my face <clears throat> were covered in these rashes. And I've always felt like when it gets when it gets bad, when my emotions, my depression, my anxiety is out of control, and the eczema, the rashes are out of control, then that the my exterior becomes a reflection of my interior. Um, so I didn't have health insurance. I wasn't taking the right stuff for it. It was getting bad. My body and my face were covered in these rashes. It was bad on tour. I'm sleeping in vans in the winter time. I remember I was at a house show and this guy looked at me and he asked if I'd gotten punched in the face. Um, so when I'd get back from tour, I just always want to sleep so I wouldn't have to deal with this, with everything that was going on. And there were times that I wasn't sure I was going to make it. I wrote one or two songs that I thought might be suicide notes. And I was talking about this with my friend Anna on their podcast, Bad Songwriter Podcast. You can find that episode that I was on um, a few months ago. Um, and we were talking about that so many of us fantasize about finding success when you're young. But the problem is, if you get that success and everyone thinks you're the shit, and everyone surrounding you is just telling you yes and yes because they want things from you or they admire you and you're so busy because there's so many demands of you and you don't have the time to reflect. So you keep churning and churning and avoiding those problems that are in your soul and you have to deal with those problems publicly. So as much as I can play that game of pining for success or fame, I'm legitimately grateful that it did not happen to me at that point in my life that I'm telling you about now, as much as I wanted it or thought that I wanted it. I'm grateful that I wasn't in the public arena at that point in my life with that music. The small local success was even enough in my mind to val validate my toxicity and my ego. Um, I, this is something else I talked about with Anna, but I read about fucking incels these people on 4chan who just buy into this story <clears throat> that society has rejected them, that women reject them because of these bizarre biological things that they think they have. And it's so fatalistic and it's so dark and it's so lonely. And it makes me so uncomfortable to see so much of myself back then into these people, the way that they see the world and how angry they are. And I'm just grateful that I had people in my life 
who cared about me enough or maybe they didn't and they were just fucking fed up. But they took the time to call me out. And long story long, as they say, I just didn't want to get fucking blackout drunk anymore. I didn't want to be so fucking angry all the time. I wanted to find things in my life to care about that were more important than getting pissed off about who got booked for Pitchfork Music Festival or what girl didn't want to go on a date with me and how all the guys getting dates are assholes, etc. I wanted to watch good movies, read about history, whatever, just like get grounded with an understanding of the world beyond my own fucking trip. And um, I wanted to have a richer appreciation for life and art. Life and art, excuse me. I wanted to have real non-selfish connections with other people. So... I was going through that, thank fucking God, and um, I just wasn't comfortable with the music that I'd been releasing and performing up to that point, and I wanted to take this time to really explore and develop a sound musically and to keep growing and finding my voice as a writer and a songwriter. Um, And I also was starting to feel open to this being a more exploratory time where I could try and see what else I could be in music other than a dude in a band. Uh, So first off, I had to relearn how to sing because I'd completely fucking blown out my voice after drinking heavily and screaming on tours. I couldn't sing falsetto, you know, like, for like six months. They would just be like, how do I describe it? Like, uh, if I would try to do it, it would just be like, just this, this horrible scraping sound when I try. And I spent some time panicking and being fatalist and trying to ignore it. But soon enough, um, I took one lesson with a guy, Zach, shout out Zach. And he showed me how to warm up. He showed me how to breathe the right way with the diaphragm. So many of us, we just sing through the uh sing through our neck and uh it's like bruce springsteen if you picture bruce springsteen singing with all the with all the veins popping out in his neck that's how that's how most of us do it and that just puts so much strain on your vocal cords and it fucking trashes your voice um so he recommended like a book of exercises and after following his advice for a few weeks my voice was starting to come back And I was really determined to figure out how to use this technique to become a better singer. Because I'd always wanted to be a better singer. Um, And to be able to sing high notes strongly and confidently. So I came up loving metal guys. That was really um, like Iron Maiden, Dio, Queensryche. And then later in high school, Jeff Buckley, David Bowie. And I just could never hit those fucking high notes. And sometimes I'd try. Sometimes I'd perform for friends in high school and try to sing like a Bowie song or something like Life on Mars. It would always make me mad when people would say that I couldn't do it or that I didn't have any business trying. And I decided that now was the time to really try and figure it out. And every day that I could, I went to the Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago. You could use a practice room with a piano for an hour Uh, But sometimes you had to wait an hour or two for one to be available. So you just have to sit there in the library. Worst things. Worst things in the world. So I went there for years. Few years. I mean, pretty much 
my entire time in Chicago, I kept going there. And uh, it was just this safe space to try and work things out, to try belting, to fail miserably, not feel like I'm getting judged by like roommates or neighbors or anything. Um, and I think in retrospect, this was a teachable moment about how anxiety works and how you can conquer it and to move on from it. Because anxiety, it's almost a cliche, but it comes from a fear of the unknown. And it can paralyze you and you you have no energy or initiative to take action or do something about it because you just keep blowing it up and blowing it out of proportion and avoiding it so that everything seems impossible. So I thought I fucked up my voice, probably permanently, or I thought that the people who talked me down, who were dismissive of me as a singer, they were right. I just never had any business being the kind of singer that I wanted to be. And all it took was one Facebook post be like, hey, does anyone recommend voice teacher? I want to take a lesson. And then taking a fucking lesson, getting some information, learning what to do and learning what to work towards, what to practice to let the fog of anxiety and the unknown just evaporate, get back to reality. You follow that and you try it out. And this is something that I still, still wrestle with. Um, I mean, I'm, I went through this <clears throat> a couple weeks ago. Like I, I was trying to do, was trying to do some performance videos of me singing live and just practice the songs that I've released, try to do them all in a row. I was finding that my voice would just get real tired and, um, I'd get pretty worn out and wasn't able to hit those notes after maybe 30 or 40 minutes. And I was really concerned and I was wor I was kind of freaking out that I've been singing the wrong way again and that maybe I just didn't have any business trying to hit those high notes and those voices from my past were, were coming back to haunt me. And I was just kind of having anxiety and I, I didn't know what to do. And I thought that um, I was just going down these YouTube rabbit holes of different um, singing techniques to try to get an answer, but I was just getting more and more overwhelmed. So eventually I hit up that guy, Zach, from <laughs> from eight years ago that I was just telling you about who I saw a lesson with, who I had a lesson with. And we've been doing fucking Zoom lessons. And uh, yeah, it turned out that I my, breathe, my diaphragmatic breathing over the years since I hadn't taken lessons in about eight years starting to get some bad habits. I wasn't doing it totally right. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm now learning that you can control. I'm, I'm just learning more about like the anatomy, how you control the anatomy to get more of an open sound, um, to, to try to get less neck tension. There's ways that you can combine your belting ah voice and your head voice ah, and get like more of a, they call a mixed voice, more of a blend to that. So you don't always have to be going high voltage singing and maybe fucking up your voice. So I've been working on that and it's just such a relief that I have the answers. And all it took was admitting that I needed some help, that I need to get outside of my own head. And now I'm feeling good about it. I mean, it's, I, I have eight years of bad habits that I have to undo, but I know that I'm on the right track, y'all. So, <clears throat> anyways, 
bit of a tangent, but um, let's get back to the, the timeline. So while this was going on, while I was on this break from being a dude in a band, trying to get my voice back, this guy, John Alvin, <clears throat> had reached out to me and he was managing a studio out in Crystal Lake, which is about two hours outside of Chicago, about an hour and a half. And he was trying to get Dastardly to do an album there. So we met up a couple times, talked about music, whatnot. He'd also asked if I'd ever considered writing songs for hire for other people, which I had never done. Uh, I was broke and was at the point where I was fucking open to anything. At this point, the stuff that I'd been branching out and trying outside of being being in a band was more like booking shows booking some other people's tours, maybe some light management um, of just like advising different artists what to do. Um, And I hadn't thought of using my creativity in that sort of way, I guess like you could say in service of other people. But I had shown him a song that I thought maybe Dastardly would try out and he thought it would be cool for this one singer he was working with to try. So I wasn't precious about holding on to the song or anything. I just said, fuck it. And I started going to his studio and we'd put together songs for his clients to try out. And we'd work together to make demos. And around this time, John had gotten me into the show called Pensado's Place. That's hosted by this guy, Dave Pensado. He's a legendary mix engineer who's mixed Christine Aguilera, Rye Carey, Jill Scott, Bonnie Tyler... And there were these long... It's still going on, by the way. It's, I still watch it every week. But it's this... They do these long-form interviews with people involved, mostly in making pop music. So there was Danger, who started out as a co-producer with Timbaland and had worked on those Justin Timberlake records and that Nelly Furtado record, Loose, song Gimme More by Britney Spears. There was Rodney Jerkins, if you don't know this guy... If you don't know the name, Dark Child, you'll know his shit. So say my name, the boy is mine. If you had my love, he wasn't man enough for me. Um, Deja Vu, was that Beyonce? Beyonce and Jay-Z. And they just talked about their process, making those songs, why they did what they did. And I just started really digging into this and paying attention to that music, that the pop music that... I had never paid attention to before. And I became obsessed with this Nelly Furtado record and some of those Rodney Jerkins songs. And um, and then as I'm learning about this, these people behind the scenes, someone suggests, I think it was my friend Max, suggested that I Google this guy, Max Martin. And I saw all the songs that this one fucking dude was responsible for. Look him up if you don't know him and look at the songs that Max Martin has been a part of over the years your your mind will be fucking blown um so what moved me about learning about the behind the scenes mechanisms of pop music was not necessarily that it could be a way for me to make a ton of money but that there were these people who had dedicated their lives to mastering the art of making something with a listener's enjoyment and a listener's experience in mind Someone who knows how to grab people's attention on that first listen that was able to touch their heart and make them want to listen over and over again and have it become a part of their lives. 
And I feel like for my first decade of writing and making music, I've been so, as I say this over and over throughout the podcast, but so concerned with my own trip. It was all about trying to fuse together my random musical influences and narrow worldview. And when I wrote a song before, I'd pretty much just like chug a Red Bull and shit it out in like 30 minutes. And if anyone didn't like it, then I figured they could just go fuck themselves. Um, but this pop framing was something new for me. And it was also kind of like really learning about the behind the scenes way that music is made. Um, that had never been an interest of mine. I've never been good with math or science. And so this, and so I just like avoided learning like what the fuck is EQ? What the fuck is compression? I never, I, I, (laughs) I wanted to stay as far away from that as possible. Uh, when I wouldn't record myself i had pro tools um but i would just press fucking record that was it just just capture it and be done with it i had a resistance to this but i was starting to um to just be really interested in all this it was just so fucking new and so there it felt like there was an entire world to start learning from and This pop framing was something new for me, really. It was a challenge and a new craft and a new discipline. The art of understanding how your work can translate to outside listeners and doing what you can to let them in. Not compromising, not doing things that you wouldn't want to do or that are inauthentic, but having someone else's experience in mind too. You know, it's basically the challenge of being authentic, but with some parameters. There's some certain expectations that people are going to to expect from a pop song, but you still have to be yourself and be emotional with with that in mind. It's really fucking hard. It's really hard. It's almost like a cliche that all these like <clears throat> music snobs, all these dudes who like listen to Yes or King Crimson or shit. Um, or, or just like jazz trained or whatever. Like they think that writing pop music is just like the easiest fucking thing. And though anyone can do this, this is so dumb. It's really hard. It's much hard. I mean, it's much harder than anything I'd ever tried to do before when I started trying to, to write in that way. And I had just never appreciated it. I'd never appreciated pop before. I always loved catchy melodies, big melodies, but I was never into pop music. Um, Never even the biggest Beatles fan, to be honest, folks. Um, I guess when I was a kid, I loved Weird Al. I knew his versions better than the originals. And I was obsessed with that shit (laughs) when I was in middle school. Um, Maybe I appreciated having that outsider's lens of pop culture. Loved the Muppets, too. Still love the Muppets, the Muppet Show, so... I knew all those big pop songs from the 70s because the guest stars all sing it on The Muppet Show. And uh, of course, like I said before, I came up loving metal. That was my first love after all that, after <laughs> The Muppets and Weird Al, Iron Maiden, Dio, Queensryche. That music just had these big, gigantic choruses. But I was never tuned in to what was popular to what the mass people were listening to. And now I'm starting to pay attention in um, 2012 when this is 20, yeah, 2012 when this is going on. I'm starting to dig back 
into what I missed, starting to pay attention to what's going on the Billboard Hot 100 every week, just looking at what's charting, giving it a listen. I'm curious. And I'm paying attention and making a note to what I like, trying to understand what's working that other people like too and that what's working for me. So anyways, back to the studio. So I started interning there at the studio, setting up cables and whatnot. Um, John taught me the bare basics of how to engineer using Pro Tools. So sometimes I would, I would work do- the door at a bar, be sweeping outside at 3 a.m., wake up the next day at 6 a.m. to take the train to the suburbs, go to the recording studio. So I started being his go-to vocal guy. Um, and by that, I mean I was, um, I was using what I'd been working on <clears throat> for myself to get become a better singer um, to help the vocalists that were working on projects there, showing them warm-ups, giving tips on how to give good performances. So I was a vocal coach, pretty much. Um, so while he was tracking the band, I would be in a different room tracking the vocals, and then it was my job to comp the vocals. So basically what that means is that maybe... So we'd record the song through, the singer would sing the song five or six times, maybe ten times, and then I'd go through the takes and then pick my favorite phrase, put it all together. And and um, so I started doing more production work too, sometimes with John engineering and sometimes me engineering. I had access to the garage of the studio. I'd have a songwriter come in. And in a day or two, we'd make like a real wet and moody album um, because all of that space from that garage, um, it was amazing. Me and John, we made a few songs with my good friend, uh, Natalie Grace Alford, and the EP from those sessions. It's on Spotify. It's called Type of Wound. And Natalie is an amazing singer and had all these cool ideas. And I was basically an armchair producer sitting back uh, and, a, and an arranger uh, while John engineered and dialed in the sounds. And it was the first time that I think that I was really able to get my hands dirty and put my newfound enthusiasm of pop music to the test. What I'd taken away from listening to those interviews in Pensado's place, from listening to certain songs over and over and over again, uh, to give room to Natalie's voice and writing to make sure things flowed, to make sure things were always exciting. It was magical, I'd say. Um, And these experiences were starting to feel different from what I felt being in a band where I was always confused and always trying to figure out an identity or what that sound was and pushing and pulling and compromising with the other members and never quite landing on anything that any one person was happy with. But this was feeling different for me. It was simple. It was complicated, but simple. So I started to get pretty stoked about being more of a producer, being more of a studio guy, a behind-the-scenes guy. Um, it's something I never would have expected. It, it Certainly for my first 10 years of music making, just about, that had never been something on my radar like I so like I said, I've never been a technical person, fucking suck at math, knew the absolute bare minimum to be able to record and edit on Pro Tools at that point, but I was really getting into it, was really excited to learn more, um, and do more. 
And so around this time out of the blue, I was catching up with my buddy, David. Um, he was my sweet mate at Columbia College in Chicago back in 2006, 2007. That time, <clears throat> he was in a duo, pop duo called the Cataracts, that was incredibly popular in their hometown of Berkeley, California. And as we were closing out freshman year at college, he told me he was going to drop out to follow his dreams because he didn't want to spend the rest of his life wondering what would happen if he didn't try. And that encouraged me to do the same. I was inspired um, by him making that making that choice. Um, so David had gone on to have a lot of success with the Cataracts. And as a writer, they had a number one song, Like a G6, um, which they wrote and featured on. They made an album with this singer Dev that had some big songs, and <clears throat> it was really inspiring. He came through Chicago once, I think it was 2010 or 2011. He was opening for Usher at the United Center, and I got to hang out backstage in the trailer, saw Usher riding around on a Segway, and that shit was exciting. Like I wasn't a poptimist, as they say back then. Not yet, I was starting to warm up to it. I was a dickhead, honestly. I gave him shit for like a G6. He gave me shit for being an East Coast Jew, singing with twang in a country band, fair enough. But watching that con concert was really moving to me, and I'd never seen an arena show before. And seeing David, um, the Cataracts, take stage, watching these tens of thousands of people just light up and get so excited when they played that song, a song that my buddy wrote, like a G6, it was amazing. And then Akon went on, and then Usher went on, and it just felt like it was this sanctuary for people to have fun and let loose and to feel good. And it was so absolutely devoid of pretentiousness and so completely joyful and inviting for anybody. Before I used to think this shit was embarrassing, but I fucking loved it. So I think it planted a seed, planted a bit of a seed. So anyways, <clears throat> back to um, 2012 and I get this phone call from David. He had quit the cataracts and spent some time in China to decompress, take a break from music. So while we're catching up, I was wrapping up a session at the studio and was getting ready to track my vocals for the dastardly record that we were starting. In our conversation, he had mentioned that he was back in L.A., trying to get back into writing, working with different producers and songwriters to try and pitch songs for artists. He had offhandedly mentioned that I should send him some song ideas, and I jumped at the opportunity. It was really good timing because, <clears throat> as I've laid out ad nauseum, my interest in pop was just starting to blossom. And I went through a song... I'd written for one of John clients that didn't end up getting used, so John helped me make a demo. I sent it to David, and he was really encouraging. So I got really stoked. I kept working on stuff and sending it to him, and I was starting to get a sense of what was working, <clears throat> really just by seeing what he responded well to and what he maybe I wouldn't get a response from. And I was basically finding that anything I wrote where I was almost cynically writing what I imagined a pop song would be, or was almost like a cynical recreation of something that was already popular, that stuff would always fall flat. And the ones that had some sort of genuine emotional core, maybe that was 
something, some sort of melody or idea that I had written for myself and was retooled in more of a pop context, that was the stuff that was getting a good response. And so meanwhile, I was doing an intensive deep dive to catch up on all the pop music that I missed and hadn't paid attention to, which was all of it. Um, I ended up spending a couple months and listened to every single number one song from that year, 2013 or 2014, I think 2013, all the way back to, to I think, 1961. And I found a lot of stuff <clears throat> that I really loved, but at the time, it was the stuff from the 80s and the early 90s that really got me going. So like Heart, Celine Dion, Bonnie Tyler, that song Toy Soldiers by Martika, fucking Aerosmith, who I always loved, but those fucking Aerosmith songs from Get a Grip, that album from the 90s, fucking monsters. Um, and I wanted to write like that. That's the shit that I wanted. <clears throat> I wanted to be able to harness that, get that that craftsmanship. All those songs by Diane Warren, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, Aerosmith, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to write courses like that and learn how to craft melodies around it so those choruses really fucking popped and everything just flowed. There was always emotional moments to latch on to. Um, maybe it comes from my love of that metal shit. Just big, unapologetic choruses. I also remember around that time I had a date with a girl and I didn't know her too much, but I liked her and I was excited to see where it was going. We had this date to go see this comedy show in downtown Chicago. I had some buddies on the show that night, so I came dressed up nice and the girl never showed up. And my friends at the stand-up show were asking me about it and I was embarrassed and I was upset and I was sad mostly. And I remember walking to the L train and it was raining. And I was thinking when I was a teenager, early 20s, and I was sad or I was hurt, I turned to music like Red House Painters, Elliot Smith or Nick Drake, really quiet, introspective, dark music. But at the moment, I really understood the utility and the value of being able to define <clears throat> and cope with and justify your feelings and relate your feelings with a big, fat, embarrassing, over-the-top chorus. Just to walk with your hurt and to just be like, And I'll need you now tonight. And I'll need you more than ever. So that's when I really fucking knew. That's when the emotional element really clicked for me. That's when I knew this was something I wanted to chase that was worth chasing and to also understand the kind of pop music that I wanted to do, that I felt in my heart and resonated with me, because I wasn't going to be able to write something like Like a G6 like David did. And if David wanted that, he'd just write it himself. Um, at the beginning, I would try to write what I thought he would write. I was fucking embarrassed myself and it would just fall flat. I remember once I sent him this demo where I kind of rapped kind of like sing rapped and he texted me back and said never do that again and i've continued and i've been as i've been getting more opportunities to work with other producers and other writers 
Um, I still am just continuing to work and find my voice and how I work with other people. And I've found that the best thing you can do is to just figure out what you do and to lean into that and to take it as far as, as you can. And if other people, other artists or producers or writers or even an audience, if that's what they want, they know where to go. They know, they, they know that you're the person for that. And if they don't want it, then that's fine. You just said that's part of, that's a part of accepting who you are. You have to let people go sometimes. Um, but this was a big lesson to me that maybe I'm still learning about how to be authentic and how to be comfortable and accepting of what you do, where your passions and your intensities are leaning toward and to be able to follow that without reservations. So I want to wrap up this episode because the, Time between here and 2015, where I quit my band and didn't know what the fuck I was going to do next. This was a super exciting, informative time for me. And just continuing to learn that craft of production, the new Dastardly album had all been tracked and I was at the studio working one-on-one with John and we were processing all these guitars and accordions and clarinets and upright pianos and different instruments putting them into Ableton, if you don't know, it's just a, it's a recording software like Pro Tools, and then processing it through all these fancy fucking racks set up in the studio and starting to create these sounds I'd been fantasizing about, dark and dreamy, haunting and psychedelic, like the Cocteau Twins, Julie Cruz, Twin Peaks soundtrack, My Bloody Valentine, and continuing to send stuff to David that I was writing, Stuff was getting recorded, demoed out with producers and other singers in LA. We're cutting the vocals. So this was good shit. Truly exciting time where it felt like anything could happen. And that everything was beginning. So if I can give you one takeaway from this episode. Because I know it was maybe a little all over the place. It seems simple enough, but sometimes... You just got to be open to trying shit, to not be so set in your ways. I had spent so long being a dude in bands and always feeling pretty uncomfortable and not really feeling too artistically stimulated. And I just thought being in a band is what you fucking do. Because when I was first in Chicago and trying to do music, that was the time of like Grizzly Bear and Vampire Weekend and TV on the radio and Dirty Projectors. And all these big, like, I guess, pop punk bands from the suburbs of Chicago. And so it was just what you do. You're a band. That's how you do music. But for me, a door opened from John. And I just said, huh? Write for someone that's not me? All right, I'll try it out. What? Pensado's place? Oh, that's pretty cool. Rodney Jerkins. Oh, what's up, David? Long time no talk. What? You're looking for songs? Oh, cool. Let me try and see what you think. And it's amazing how seemingly little things out of the blue can change your life if you let it. So what do they say? Go with the flow? That's an easier way of saying it. So sometimes I see more hustle culture minded people say you got to just make a goal and then do this and this and this till you get there. But I, I don't buy it. I think life's fucking random. And you do what works until it doesn't, then you fucking try something else. I'm still going through that. All right, let's 
let's leave it there. Let's let's call it an episode. I think maybe uh, next week we'll um, we'll finish the Calvero Origins series, and uh, we'll head back to where we left off on episode one. And I'll walk you through the process of how Calvero and this music came to be. So I'll talk to you then. Thank you all for listening. I'm gonna go sit here, listen to some fucking power tools. <laughs>